0: This podcast was recorded shortly before Owen Patterson resigned. Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. It's a podcast of two parts today. Yesterday, MPs controversially voted to put off making a decision on whether to suspend Conservative MP Owen Paterson from the House of Commons. Today, after massive backlash in Parliament and across the front pages, the government is rowing back fast, in fact, U-turning. So what is going on? What does this say about the system that governs MPs' behaviour and how much damage has this vote done? We'll make sense of a story that is unfolding as we record. And from politicians coming together to find a way to save an MP's job to the rather more edifying spectacle of politicians coming together, sort of, to find ways to save the planet. We're going to head to Glasgow, where the eyes of the world have been on COP26. And after travelling to Scotland, many by private jet, which did not pass without comment, world leaders have tried to come up with a plan to tackle climate change. So what deals have been struck? Where do we go from here? We'll take a look at that too. All that to come. I'm delighted to be joined throughout by Jill Rutter, IFG senior fellow and veteran of many government departments and number 10 too. Hi, Jill.
1: Good afternoon, Roman.
0: Always good to have you with us. Let's start in Westminster because that's where this week's biggest upheaval is. This story is moving fast, but it goes something like this. MPs voted not to suspend Owen Paterson, at least for now, after the Tory MP was accused of an egregious breach of the MP's code of conduct But the government has about an hour ago U-turned. This all goes to the heart of important questions about standards and ethics in public life and the rules and conventions that uphold those standards. With perfect timing today, Thursday, the IFG has been holding a special one-day conference on standards and ethics. If you miss the events through the day, then check out our sister podcast channel, IFG Live, very soon. And hot-footing it from the discussion is Tim Durant, IFG Associate Director and the mastermind behind the day. Hi, Tim.
2: Hi, Bronwyn. How's it been going? Very well, thank you. Very good so far. We had Lord Evans, chair of the Committee on Standards in Public Life this morning. He set out a very strong set of recommendations for how his committee thinks standards can be improved. And he made particular reference to the whole debate and vote over Owen Paterson. He he was not impressed with what happened in the Commons yesterday.
0: He was not at all. I was chairing that, and he started with a fusillade of, um, you know, it cannot be right that uh, half a dozen times. Let's, in fact,
3: uh, hear from Lord Evans. In my view, yesterday's vote on the report of the Common Standards Committee was a very serious and damaging moment for Parliament and for public standards in this country. It cannot be right that MPs should reject, after one short debate, the conclusions of the Independent Commissioner for Standards and the House of Commons Committee on Standards conclusions that arose from an investigation lasting two years. It cannot be right to propose an overhaul of the entire regulatory system in order to postpone or prevent sanctions in a very serious case of paid lobbying by an MP. It cannot be right that this was accompanied by repeated attempts to question the integrity of the Commissioner for Standards herself who is working within the system that the House of Commons agreed in 2010. And it cannot be right to propose that the standard system in the House of Commons should be reviewed by a select committee chaired by a member of the ruling party and with a majority of members from that same party. This extraordinary proposal is deeply at odds with the best traditions of British democracy. The political system in this country does not belong to one party or even to one government. It is a common good that we have all inherited from our forebears and that we all have a responsibility to preserve and to improve.
0: Tim, take us into the story a bit and if you possibly can make it simple, what happened in the House of Commons yesterday?
2: So the Commons Committee on Standards, which is different to the Committee on Standards in Public Life, had been uh, investigating complaints made against Owen Patterson, who'd been accused of, of lobbying paid advocacy on behalf of, of some companies. They had looked at the evidence gathered by the Parliamentary Commissioner on Standards, who is a, a an appointed official, and they had concluded that Owen Patterson had indeed breached the code of conduct for MPs and that therefore he should be suspended for 30 days. They published a report arguing this, and the vote yesterday was supposed to be a vote to kind of approve that report and therefore approve his suspension. But became clear over the course of the weekend and and, and earlier this week that government uh, didn't really want that to happen and that there were moves among the Conservative backbenchers and the government to try and stop or at least delay his suspension from the Commons because they felt the process was not fair to him. So the vote yesterday was on an amendment saying, we're going to delay this suspension and set up a new committee, which will have a majority of government members on it, to look at how this whole process works and how it can be improved. The government whipped its MPs to support that amendment and therefore it got through. The government has a strong enough majority to get that through. There was a rebellion. There were several MPs, Conservative MPs, who didn't vote and um, I think around 13 or 14 who voted against it. So there was a rebellion. Not everyone was happy and a lot of the MPs who voted for it were complaining anonymously to journalists saying that they didn't want to do it. So clearly the party was not fully happy with this. The opposition parties all voted against it. And then after the vote had gone through, the uh, Labour Party and the SNP said that they would not serve on this new committee, meaning effectively, it would be an entirely conservative committee if it were to be established. So that was the state of play at the end of Wednesday.
0: Yeah. And what's happened today? This morning,
2: in a, in a business statement to the Commons, the, the leader of the Commons, Mag, Jacob Rees-Mogg, said, actually, we've realised the strength of feeling on this uh, topic and we're going to look again because we didn't mean for the changes that we think are sensible to, to bring into this process to get all caught up with this individual case of Owen Patterson, uh, And obviously that was one of the accusations that people were making yesterday that the government was saying, "Oh, we've been meaning to change these rules for ages. And the question obviously then was, well, why are you doing it halfway through this particular case? So it seems now that there will be another vote on the recommendation that Patterson be suspended. That will come next week. But that the government is still going to try and reform change, rewrite the standards process uh, more generally, but that those two things have now been separated, given the scale of the blowback against what happened yesterday.
0: Thanks for taking us through that. Jill, what do you make of this? Was there a case for reforming all these procedures?
1: There may be a case for having a look again at the procedures, but as Tim has just said, the case was not to be made while you were passing judgment uh, on a conservative former cabinet minister uh, who was deemed to have, as the committee said, offended quite egregiously. The system actually doesn't look that unfair, objectively. MPs say they don't like the fact that this is an inquisitorial rather than an adversarial system. They don't like the fact that maybe that there are outsiders involved or that there's no formal appeals. I think uh, you know one of the suggestions that our colleague Hannah White has been making is you could put this into law and uh, involve the courts and then MPs forget all that. Whether they really want the courts involved, I think it's a very interesting, different question.
0: They may, they may not have thought that one through. Their point was uh, the, the, the significance of it being an inquisitorial system was that Owen Patterson didn't get the right to offer his own case.
1: Yeah, and lots of other countries have inquisitorial systems of just things. a really interesting question about whether that's a better way of uh, doing things than an adversarial system. And I think if you look at other sort of you know, complaints bodies, they don't necessarily... Uh, work very well if you have two sides, um, lawyers at dawn arguing in an adversarial way. So I don't think it necessarily is pointing to the fact that to a flawed system. So I think it's very moot whether that that would be a better system or not. But the look yesterday of upending a whole system to protect one of your own, um, they the government completely open to the charge that it was rewriting the rules to protect one of their friends, and that we know from past history that the Labour charge of its one rule for us and another one for the rest of the population is one that really does potentially resonate. And I think that's what aggrieved so many Conservative MPs being dragooned into the lobbies yesterday, and is one reason when they've looked at the headlines today, which are almost universally absolutely damning, is that the government has done this really, really, really rapid U-turn.
0: And how damaging do you think it is? Lord Evans started off this morning by saying, look, this is the kind of thing that damages Britain's international reputation for having good government, good standards. It can damage you know, security, economy, all these kind of things.
1: I think it is very damaging because one of the things that the UK has prided itself on being, and I think Lord Evans was saying that in the session this morning, is that we're not a corrupt country. We do help people to high standards and that you know, we can look to our members of parliament and say, unlike lots of other countries, we are a well-governed country. But I think, you know, the events not just of this week, but uh, but over the past year, with rounds about the ministerial code, the role of the independent advisor, the fact that the Prime Minister himself is subject to so many investigations, those are all beginning to call in question whether the UK really can hold itself up as this sort of shining beacon of uh, clean governance and I think that's a reputation that you don't want to lose the UK employs a lot of people to go off and lecture other countries about improving their governance it's not a great look if you're a diplomat sitting somewhere in a foreign capital where there are governance issues governance challenges they'll be able to throw it back at you and say well look at what your MPs just voted to do yeah you'll know better than us I think you know it's a it's a very bad place to be,
0: Tim. what do you make of the arguments that in a democratic system, in the end it's going to have to be Parliament that judges on these rules and in a sense, a prime Minister who judges on on ministers? Uh, we had a long discussion with this uh, with Lord Evans this morning on this, and the questions he was getting were very interesting. There was a whole bank of them saying, I wish there could be some kind of independent Arbitrator of all this, uh, independent uh, up, up above all the other arbitrators who could judge this, and his argument was: Look, no, in a democratic system, you cannot really have that. Who judges that judge? And people finding this this very unsatisfactory in some way that it comes back to parliament. But that is the essence of our system, isn't it?
2: It is. I I, I agree with with what Lord Evans said and with what you say, Bob. And that is the essence of this the system we have, and you can't. In 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 to look at Parliament, I don't think you can have you know people who work for Parliament having the final decision on whether in extremis to suspend a member of Parliament. That has to be a decision for the House of Commons. Now, normally in previous suspensions, when the Committee on Standards has recommended a suspension, that committee is made up of, of MPs from uh, across parties, and the Commons supports the recommendations of that committee. It, it was unusual for there to be a contested vote yesterday. And, and clearly, you know, the government has reconsidered and, and there will be another vote on Patterson's case, particularly in particular next week. But also it's the same with ministers. You know, the prime minister is the one who appoints ministers. The prime minister has his job by virtue of being the leader of the largest party in Now's Commons, the party that can command the confidence of the Commons. That is how our democratic system works. And it wouldn't be appropriate for if a minister were found to have broken the ministerial code by an unelected official for that person to have the power to say, you must resign as a minister. It has to be the prime minister who um, who makes that call. The question that that raises, and that I think a lot of the people asking Lord Evans about this um, this morning, they were raising is if you have a prime minister who, by his actions, perhaps not by his words, you know, shows that actually even if people break codes or if they are uh, found to have, have misbehaved, then he is willing to, use his political capital to protect them, then actually there's no other recourse but that but but that is the way it works. That is our system.
0: You're racing back to our conference What's next in the conference?
2: So this afternoon, we have a session with Standards Commissioners from uh, Parliament, the Parliament the House of Commons in Ottawa and from the Northern Ireland Assembly, as well as a uh, representative from Transparency International UK. So it'll be interesting to hear how other governments and other parliaments approach these issues. And then we're finishing with a, a session with Peter Riddle talking about public appointments and how that process can be improved. So lots more to come.
0: Okay, well, I'll leave you to it, but we'll all be listening in later Very, very best for the rest of the day. Thank you very much. Let's move on to COP26. We're now joined by IFG Associate Director and Net Zero expert, Tom Sass. Hi, Tom. Hi, Bronwyn. And I'm really pleased to be joined from Glasgow by Richard Black, a senior analyst at the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit, ECIU, and a former BBC environment correspondent. Richard, great that you could be here.
4: No, a pleasure to be with you.
0: Where are you exactly right now?
4: Right, so I'm standing in what's called the Action Zone at COP26 in Glasgow. Above our heads, there's a giant uh, globe of the world. And around us, there's a couple of TV studios, and there are also some pretty uh, sort of exciting-looking um, open booths where various uh, business groups and others are, are sort of periodically standing up and, and telling us what they've got planned. Um, but uh, frankly, there's a lot of people just sitting around opening their laptops and having cups of coffee as well. And what's the mood been like? Well, it's, it's been interesting, actually. I mean, the opening of the, of the summit was definitely constrained by logistics. There were massive problems that people had in getting into the venue, big security queues and things like this. The NGOs haven't had the access to negotiations that they usually have and really, really want to have. So that's been a constraint as well. But um, inside the halls, it's been a little bit more business-like than uh, I think many of us feared. Um, we haven't seen the sort of procedural disputes out in the open that you often get at the beginnings of things like this. And on some of the thorniest articles, it seems as though the discussions are at least serious. They may not be getting towards agreement yet, but they are at least t- treating it seriously. The other dominant thing I think we've had is uh, what you might call boosterism. who would have thought it, eh? With uh, you a know, succession of announcements coming out, uh, you know, coordinated by the UK COP26 presidency, um, most of which I think do mean something, but probably not quite as much... Um, as the headlines might indicate. And often, you know, journalists are sort of, it's, it's great news management in a way because journalists are, A, you know, compelled to cover these things, which are quite exciting sounding, but they're also spending a lot of time figuring out what it actually means that keeps them away from other things.
0: And what would you say the most solid things are? Because we've had all kinds of stardust sprinkled over it, David Attenborough, Prince Charles, Joe Biden, video from the Queen, uh, and so on. But what would you say the real achievements so far... have have been. We're not at the end, obviously.
4: No, that's right. We've had a succession of uh, deals on various issues, agreements on various issues. So a couple that are emerging on fossil fuels are quite interesting. So on one of them, we've got a group of now just over 40 countries that have basically pledged to phase out coal and not to build any more coal-fired power stations. So some of them were signed up to this already. Some of them are new. The gross impact of this on emissions is quite hard to judge because it depends when they phase them out over what kind of trajectory and so on. And the dates that they've pledged are not yet in line with science. What the science tells us is necessary for 1.5 Celsius, but nevertheless, it's a step forward. And um, we've also seen a number of countries, just over 20, come forward and pledge an end to fossil fuel financing overseas. So that's, again, a small step forward, not necessarily the biggest ones, but it's some and I think the other thing which has got some solidity behind it is the pledge by countries representing about probably about half of global methane emissions to slash those emissions by 30% over this decade. That's really good from the scientific point of view because methane delivers a you know a short sharp pulse, uh, a short sharp warming pulse. So you need to get that down quickly. And it has some pretty major countries behind it, like the US. So I think that's that's, that's probably meaningful. Yeah.
0: And the UK is obviously, and unsurprisingly, portraying this very much from the UK point of view and as a a big um, triumph of UK diplomacy. But this really reflects a lot of countries making some changes, doesn't it?
4: Yes, it does. And one of the things that we have to try and unpick every time an announcement comes out Is which countries have already made this commitment in the past? eh? You know, it's it's like uh, whenever you get a government spending announcement, isn't it? How much of this is actually new money? So, for example, when we looked at the uh, the coal, the fossil fuel financing abroad, you know, the the country that catches your eye is the US, but the US actually said this back in August. And then when you look at the coal phase out, one of the countries that catches your eye is Poland, Um, you know, coal heavy country, one of the biggest coal burners in Europe, but they've actually said this already. So it's not, it's not easy to look at what, you know, what is exactly new here. But I must say, in that press release on uh, the coal face-out, I've never seen claim, so many claims of UK leadership throughout one press release. I mean, not, not, let, let's not be too churlish. They have played a role. And, and I know some of the civil servants who are doing the behind-the-scenes work, and they're very serious about it, very committed, and they're doing a great job. But you're absolutely right. Most of these countries make this decision because they actually see it's in their own economic interest To do this. But of course, by doing so, they do send a signal. They send a signal to other countries, they send a signal to markets. You know, coal is inevitably on the way out, for example. It is really just a question of the timescale.
0: Very interesting. Jill, do you think Boris Johnson's had a good summit?
1: I think it seems to be not a bad summit in COP terms, in terms of being able to point to some concrete stuff. And after all, and one of his problems was everybody compared with Paris. And Paris, there was a sort of thing, single focal point of trying to get this agreement. This was always going to be, I think, a rather bitsier summit in the sense of trying to make progress on multiple fronts and trying to actually sort of, if you like, operationalize the ratchet that Paris agreed so that people at Paris sort of you know, started off agreeing that they would try to make attempts to deliver two degrees and, if possible, to get under 1.5 degrees. And the big UK theme has been this keeping 1.5 alive. So they've been able to point to, I think, concrete steps forward. You could criticise everyone, not enough countries in it. How deliverable are the commitments? Are they on the right timescale? But I think they can point to sort of definite forward momentum there, I mean, I think one of the issues for Boris Johnson from more general summit management, and I'd be very interested in what Richard takes of this being at Glasgow, is the extent to which any of the sort of reporting there or any of the international delegates have noticed the sort of background noises of what's going on in terms of the early part of the week being dominated by this row well, with the French overfishing. And yesterday's vote on parliamentary standards, I don't think that's probably quite the news management backdrop that the prime minister was hoping for for his COP, which after all was sort of you know, a big UK commitment to do this, made very early on in the Johnson yeah. prime ministership.
0: I wanted to ask you about the preparation for this, because there was a lot of criticism about lack of preparation. Has the prime minister and his team, enormous team, uh, on this pulled it off?
1: There's no sort of really existing counterfactual of if the Prime Minister had put in more personal effort, uh, done what he tried to do, but seemed to be rebuffed by others have managed to appoint a much bigger hitter as COP president, would it have made a difference if he managed to attract one of the sort of big people into there rather than uh, end up appointing Alex Sharma slightly belatedly to be COP president and focus single-mindedly on that? I think people think, Alex Sharma's generally done a sort of quite good job, a diligent job behind the scenes, but he's not a sort of, you know, man for whom the traffic stops. So I don't know whether, and again, I'd be very interested in Richard as a sort of much more veteran cop watcher, whether you know the UK could have got more along if uh, if the Prime Minister had been much more engaged, not distracted by other things like the pandemic, like Brexit, things like that, or indeed whether a weightier COP president would have made a difference.
0: I'm going to put all these things to Richard in a second, but uh, Tom, I wanted to bring you in here. You were trawling through this this vast pile of government net zero documents that came out last week. Did these work well for the UK COP in the sense of preparation and setting out the UK's position, or were they quite late in the day?
5: Mm, Well, I'd be interested to hear what what Richard picked up on the conference. Right, right. Um, We really uh, are
0: going back to Richard. (laughs) I was just going to say, well,
5: if it aligns with, with what my sense on the UK's net zero strategy my sense is it's it's sort of landed reasonably well with the sort of international audience i was at a, a conference with some german officials last week and they were actually saying you know in germany and the german government is sort of quite impressed by how boris johnson has taken up net zero they've had a look at the net zero strategy and and i think the uk can point to actually sort of having a bit more of a plan than most other countries have come with i mean clearly there's some gaps in there as, as we and many others have have identified and I think the interesting thing internationally is that the, what the UK has set out is a sort of net zero strategy that you'd expect to see from a centre right, slightly populist government. You know, it's it's very market led, doesn't expect much behaviour change from people, and other countries are going to, and other governments, and other political types of party are going to come out with quite different plans. So, so it's going to be interesting to see the debate about that. But um, yeah, as as Jill says, it, the other sort of component of this is the extent to which countries have also picked up on wider things that are happening in the uk
0: richard everyone is craving your insight uh being on the spot and with all your no expertise pressure. in in, in <laughs> this so first take take jill's point that tom's just re- referred to there um have these these other bits of news that the government won't have wanted uh, have those um impinged on the discussion up
4: there no, to be honest, they, they, they haven't. I mean, obviously, when I, you know, when, I, when I meet and talk to other British journalists here, it's one of the things that we do discuss, but no, it's not really filtering through into the coverage or the, the impression. I got the impression that you know both Britain and France had made some concerted effort to damp down the row of the fishing licences. Both seem to have moved on their, on, their, on their respective positions, and I really hope that's because it wasn't a good look, frankly, for either of them to be uh, fussing about this. When, uh, when a major summit actually you know an issue that both of them have a stake in um, was underway so I, so I hope that's I hope that's gone to bed I, I, I really like Tom's uh, description of the UK net zero strategy by the way um, I it, it clearly does have some holes in it but you know for all that it is probably the most advanced, I think. Well, I, I mean, I say that, I, I, can't, I, I, you know, I can't read Swedish and I can't read Finnish, so I'm, I may be missing something here, but of the ones I've seen, you know, if you compare it with Australia's net zero strategy, for example, or plan, should we say, which is basically, we're going to carry on burning fossil fuels, we'll do some renewables, which is probably happening anyway, carry on you know, exporting oil and gas, do some carbon capture, plant some trees, and then hope for technologies to come along in the 2040, but without actually making them come along I mean, you know, the British one looks like the works of Shakespeare beside an Enid Blython novel in that context. Um, not that that, act, not that the UK's domestic record is actually being talked about much here. That's one of the interesting things, and I, I think that's for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that the UK NGOs haven't really been pushing this. They've not really been highlighting gaps in the UK's strategy, which obviously they, they have been earlier in the year, but now we're here, they're not really pushing that line. You know, and I think that's sensible. The big opportunities, what comes out of here, uh, so let's focus on that. And I think the other reason is that, you know, journalists from other countries and so on who might have been looking at this have been just kept busy by <laughs> the sequence of announcements that's uh, that's coming out that are, that are far more interesting. We've also seen some interesting science, uh, of course, um, which is... I'd to say a little bit controversial at the moment, but we've seen... We, we, on, um, on, on Wednesday, we had um, an analysis by a University of Melbourne group who showed that sort of if everything is implemented, everything's implemented, that countries have pledged, you know, we could be on track for 1.9, which in some circles is now being touted as, oh, well, that's, that's great, you know? We're, 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 but, but, of course, there's so much that actually needs to be firmed up. You know, countries like Australia... The net zero plan isn't credible. Same with the Saudis. So many of the other things, we don't have the details. We just don't know know, how it's going to be delivered and therefore whether it's credible. And so many countries have so much to do turning pledges into action. But I think if it gets interpreted as, oh, it's fine, we're on track for 1.9, it's quite dangerous. I think what it's showing us is that that's feasible uh, if governments do the hard stuff over the next 30 years. But I personally still find that quite an encouraging message because the temperature limit that's feasible keeps on coming down. And that's definitely a good news story.
0: That's really interesting. I was going to ask about where you, how you calibrated the kind of optimism and your, your own optimism on that. And th- thanks for saying that. What should people in the UK look at in the sense of what affects them directly?
4: That's a really good question. I, possibly, not very much potentially, because, you know, the UK has its strategy, it has its net zero target date and more to the point it has its glide path courtesy of the carbon budgets that the government adopts for you know every five years and there are you know we clearly know what the future is going to be in motoring you can more or less say what it's going to be in home heating in terms of what affects the uk public about the uk's own progress to net zero i think the biggest black hole is probably land use and what's going to happen to the countryside because you know the countryside is basically going to have to be climate negative if the country itself is going to be climate neutral. And so far, we have had nothing from DEFRA that, you know, resembles any kind of strategy. So, OK, so, what, so, so what, how do things here? Att- so, first of all, all, the commitments that all governments make, the sum total of that, affects the climate impacts we feel in the UK and everywhere else. And, of course, climate impacts in other countries can affect the UK uh, because they can affect the health of the global economy, they can affect supply chains. They can affect migrations. We have got a big diaspora community in the UK, so how you know how does that affect people in in, in in other countries, for example, that they're related to? Every government that steps up with a big pledge on, for example, renewable energy results in the price of renewable energy coming down a bit. And the same with electric cars, and the same with heat pumps and all of these things. So you look at the sum total of all those things, it actually does make a difference, but probably not as much difference as the UK government's own decisions, I would say.
1: Can I just add something there, Bronwyn, which I think it's... Yeah, the Prime Minister has taken a lead on net zero. He's put out the net zero strategy, but there are sort of some stirrings of concern on the back benches, this new net zero scrutiny group set up by Craig and Kinley and Steve Baker. I think it's quite important that the Prime Minister can point to a success at the COP in giving some international momentum to this, to, if you like, keep up the momentum on the UK's domestic strategy when everybody's left Glasgow. Because I think if the COP ended in complete disarray and there was absolutely no sign of international action, those potential critics on the back benches would take heart from that and say, well, why is the UK inflicting all these costs on our citizens making our business uncompetitive you know in a world that's clearly not going to deal with climate change so I think there's a bit of a sort of relationship there uh, and creating the political space for the government to actually get on with what it now has to do which is take forward its net zero strategy.
0: It's a really important point there. Uh, Richard briefly what are you going to look for in the rest of the summit?
4: at some point probably early next week i think we actually need to look at the negotiations themselves and switch away from these announcements and in particular where the least developed the poorest countries the most vulnerable countries are because we haven't really heard much from them in the uk media but behind the scenes not they're not happy about a lot of things they're not happy that this long promised 100 billion per year is not on the table they're not happy with the with the with the way that that's going. We heard a a striking proposal by the Barbadian Prime Minister Mia Motley at the opening session that basically the West, you've done stacks of quantitative easing to get yourselves out of COVID and say, and how about giving us like 500 billion per year worth of quantitative easing essentially to let us do the low carbon transition that we need. They're not happy with the lack of progress on loss and damage. They're not happy with the lack of progress on adaptation. So I think that's what I will be personally focusing on as we get past this slew of, uh, you know, sector announcements in fossil fuels and finance and all these things.
0: Thank you. And Tom, what are you looking out for?
5: Well, I think that we're really moving both in the domestic discussion and on the international from just having this sort of overarching set of targets. And Richard mentioned the sort of 1.8, 1.9 coming into view to actually how do we deliver this and how do we pay for it? How do we pay for it domestically is the big question that Steve Baker et al are focusing on, as Jill says. But what I've really noticed in the COP, as, as Richard's alluding to there from the, the Barbadian PM, but also if you looked at Modi's statement, there was a really interesting call for you know upping international aid to one trillion. You know, Poorer countries really demanding much more in terms of financing from the rich world if all of these pledges are to actually be delivered. And I think that's where you're going to see an interesting case need to be made from those some of those wealthier countries to their own populations about what they can afford and what's just and so on.
0: And Jill, what happens when everyone goes home?
1: Well, what happens is then, you know, these conference parties happen uh, happen quite frequently. People go back. And I think the really interesting thing is, as um, Tom and Richard were saying, is the real thing people look for is... Uh, You don't just go home with a bunch of pledges, but do you actually start to fulfil those pledges? Because people can and have been pointing to pledges, whether it's on deforestation or on that climate finance that was first promised back in Copenhagen in 2009. The big question then is you can say lots of things at Glasgow, sign lots of pieces of paper, but do those things actually happen? And I think part of the work uh, that the negotiators are doing in the background in Glasgow as well is filling in some of the details that were uh, left blank in Paris on sort of transparency and reporting. So I think the question is whether that momentum is maintained and whether people go back and prepare for a net zero world and to meet the pledges they've just made because all these sort of encouraging things that Richard was talking about, about is this enough, to take us below two degrees, approach 1.5, only are valid if actions are taken. You know, a few yeah. commitments on paper don't do very much. For anything.
0: If things are actually done. Well, thanks th- for that. And we can um, even be talking about it in a week's time. Richard, I'm going to leave you to get back to the conference. Thanks so much for joining us today.
4: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: And that's it for this edition of Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Jill Rutter, Tim Durrant, Tom Sass, and especially to Richard Black. As I said before, do keep an eye out for a lot of new podcasts landing on IFG Live. Standards in public life have been in the news a lot this year, not in a good way. And our podcast feed is going to be populated with the best of today's conference. You can listen to all our podcasts todaycast, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And do leave us a review. We won't try and overturn the bad ones, we promise. You can find more of our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk, including all our brilliant Net Zero work and everything we've been doing on standards and ethics. That's it for now. I hope this podcast met the required standard for everyone listening at home. See you next week.